So you sent me a couple of different blog posts or essays. One was in a an academic on an academic blog about Trump, <laughs> and it had more than yeah. one author. Who who wrote the, wrote that one? Um, that would be Nikos Sotirkopoulos, and uh, I'm not sure a colleague of his that I don't know, but uh, I know I've known Nikos for years. Okay. So, and the other guy was Dr. Daniel Chernillo, I think is how you would say his name. Um, okay. Just looking at it now. And the, the piece, that was called The Vengeance of Identity Politics and Emotionalism. Actually, it was called Trump, The Vengeance of Identity Politics and Emotionalism. And yeah. then the other one was uh, uh, Kenan Malik's uh, Between Rage and Terror, and it was uh, something he wrote for the New York Times and then republished on his blog. I, I really like Kenan Malik's stuff. I just finished reading... Um, the quest for moral compass. And um, it was quite funny because I've, you know, I'm writing a book, my second book at the moment. And the last chapter of his book, I realized had all of the arguments that I plan to make with frighteningly similar wording. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, great, great minds think alike, right? I don't know. I read, I read his book, the meaning of race 10 years ago. And it had such a massive effect on me that I think I've I probably had a you know internalized a lot of his ideas and thought they were my own. <laughs> That's what you do with any great work, right? You apply them to something new, something different. So the first question I I wrote down here and sent to you, I guess it's in response to both of the pieces. Maybe there's this motto or slogan from the feminist movement of the '60s and '70s that the personal is political. Mm-hmm. It's been taken up and transformed over time. What do you think the major reasons are that the personal has replaced the political? And was it was it replacing the political originally in the sixties and seventies, and they just didn't see that, or was it um, did it mean something different back then than it's come to mean now? I would argue that it has replaced and displaced the political, and that it did so at the very beginning, and was partially symptomatic of the decline of the political at the time. Um, But when you initially worded the question, you said, what were the major reasons that the personal replaced the political? And there's two answers to that. There's the reasons why it initially replaced it in the past. And there's um, the reason why it's replaced it in the present. And I think there's a common thread between these two, but they're also something different is going on at the moment. So I think in the past, the personal political was obviously partially a way to articulate feminist concerns when women had been relegated largely to the private sphere, the private sphere not being um, the realm of uh, politics, of civic engagement, of um, certain social rights uh, associated with the welfare state. And therefore, it was a very pragmatic way of articulating women's issues and grievances and needs at the time it opened up a space in 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 the civil oh, sorry in the public sphere um, for women that wasn't there before and so in that sense it was um, you know pragmatic however I think that there was also I think the emergence of the personal as political was also a, a backlash against the working class at the time and I think it's reflective of a kind of disappointment in the working class that was huge at the time and still colors left-wing thinking, whereas the working class in in previous generations of of left liberalism, and in particular Marxism and the communist movement and so on, um, was seen as the solution. 
to the, to the problems of the present, that the work, you know, workers of the world unite, that sort of thing. What started to happen was the working class was no longer seen as a solution, but a problem in itself. The working class came to be defined as this regressive force and as a largely white male force. And therefore, um, the left began to increasingly define itself as not this caricature of the white working class male who's more interested in his own interests and has abandoned the sort of larger movement and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there was a lot of disappointment that you know led to the rise of identity as something political and particularly an identity as something not white not male that 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 movement initially reflected so that's the that's the past the figure that represents that working class would be someone like archie bunker in the united states back then right mm-hmm. the sort of racist misogynist factory worker who has exactly. no power really except for the the way the power he has in his own domestic sphere. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a there's a thread to that that continues all the way up to the present. In the UK it's sort of like white van man, you know, this um uh there's a lot of sort of caricatures of white working class people as chavs. Um I'm not sure if you've heard of that term. Um define that term of chav. The stereotype of the chav is white working class, obviously, drives a white van, has a flag, or an English flag hanging in his window rather than nice window dressings, um, ha- wears um, sports joggers or what, do you, what would you call jogging pants? Mm-hmm. And what, what would I call it back in the day when I was in Canada still? I guess I'd Sweat, call them sweatpants. Sweatpants, that's what I wanted to say. You know, Adidas sweatpants, a gold chain, <laughs> um, bad teeth. I, I guess that would be the stereotype of the chap. But there's also, that's the, the sort of look, but there's also like this idea of the white working class as racist, as basically a group that harbors all of the worst sentiments of society, more or less. So defining yourself as not that is uh, is still really, really powerful. This sort of group of people is one of the most obviously disenfranchised groups as well. But identity politics tends to see the white working class man as uniquely privileged, which is really interesting. But anyways, that's kind of a side note. Into the present, we still see that kind of like despair of the masses, this feeling that the masses can't be trusted, the working class sold out. So identity politics arises in that context, in the context of a sense of loss that um, the working class wasn't actually the solution. In fact, it was the problem and it is the problem. But at the same time, I think that there are lots of different causes to why the personal has replaced the political toward the present. Obviously, there is a loss of ideology. You know, it's the sort of end of history. When I sort of argue with identitarians, Uh, I would bring up certain concepts like exploitation or class or uh, universal human, and I'd be kind of met with complete incomprehension. At a sort of basic level, I'd be met with complete incomprehension. The more sort of aware identitarians would say, oh, the universal human is part of the problem and so on. So I, I think that the personal has replaced the political towards the present because of the decline of the of different vocabularies of any kind of collective action and it's it's really interesting because what we see right now toward the present with identity politics and some of the 
some of the trends, they're repeating themselves. And the exact same thing was happening in the early 90s. Not the exact same thing because it's turned into a monster with social media and that sort of thing. But very similar trends were propping up in the early 90s. And it's interesting that there is a similar social and political and historical context to that, that you had the fall of the Berlin Wall. Everyone was sort of proclaiming the end of history. And it was just sort of like, well, well, what is left-wing politics about? You know, it was like the sort of the, the death knell of that movement that hoped to transcend capitalism. And so we had a retreat and a fragmentation of the left into single issue, single issues, more or less. Yeah. So, you know, you know, one person would be for you know, stop the war, another person would be for the whales, whatever. And at the same time, we have a very similar thing going on towards the present. So you had student movements five years ago trying to stop cuts and obviously occupy Wall Street. And I'm not saying that this is causal, but it's just an interesting context that we had this feeling that there was this, you know, the Arab Spring, that that things were happening. You know, people could come together and they could change things. They didn't know what the hell they wanted to change, but there was a sense of coming together. Mm. And then a sense of complete loss and powerlessness. And so on the one hand, you have people sort of searching for low-hanging fruit, easy victories, change the language, uh, calling people out, trying to get people to be nicer, kicking at an open door. You know, um, institutions are, educational institutions already are self-loathing enough, um, asking them to, to do certain things and to capitulate to student demands. I mean, the administrators might as well just put the words into students' mouths that they don't care about education necessarily. They just care about student satisfaction. So it's a very easy way to make yourself feel like you're affecting change, that you're doing something. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's part of the reason that's happening. Uh, Not the reason, but I think that's part of the context, that there's a sense of loss, a sense of uh, uncertainty about what a progressive project ought to be. And so there's this retreat into the self and uh, this... uh, desire for recognition of the self and uh, policing language and very kind of simple therapeutic outcomes. But the causes of this, I think, are a lot deeper. And I think it's, you know, we've got uh, 20 years of claims making around, you know, moral entrepreneurs, psychologists and so on, who've basically made it their task to inculcate a sense of, not inculcate, but to get people to accept their vulnerability, their emotional vulnerability, um, their need for recognition of their fragile identities, a common belief that fragile identity is a source of all kinds of social problems. And that's been very mainstream for a very long time and championed by various policymakers and so on, who believe that if we could just get people to to have a strong sense of self and a strong identity, then you wouldn't have, you know, poverty and whatever social problems. So these sort of therapeutic explanations of social problems have led to a lot of therapeutic interventions, uh, particularly in education. And so you have a generation of people who are sort of brought up on a diet of emotional vulnerability. And so you have a situation where politics has become has been displaced not only by the personal, but by a, a, a sort of vulnerable person, uh, a fragmented and fractured kind of identity. 
and a desire to to make the world conform or recognize your fragmented and fragile identity in a very sort of narcissistic way that has no purpose. It has hasn't got any meaning. It's more or less a sort of narcissistic quest for recognition that isn't politics at all. You know, I think people have always been fragile and emotionally fragile, uh, although in certain circumstances, being emotionally fragile isn't the end of the road. I mean, you can have your feelings hurt, say, but nonetheless, because of a lot of you know real material demands, you put that as- you have to you end up putting that aside, right? And taking stock and pressing on. Is it our affluence that has created conditions where people don't feel compelled to suppress their emotions and allow that fragility to dictate their beliefs and actions? Or is this driven by an industry that uh, wants to produce more and more psychiatric or psych- uh, psychological patients. You shouldn't look at, at major social trends from a multi from a monocausal perspective. These things are, are multi-causal, and I always find that when people want to be dialectical, <laughs> they will take this you know X trend and take X economic basis and sort of put them together, but it. It's a little bit more complicated than that. I think that I think that you need to figure out first of all what a phenomenon is and describe it and then sort of peel back the layers and eventually you might come down to an economic reason affluence which I don't think <coughs> is the reason or is 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 down there anyway at the bottom of this. But yeah, there's lots of there are lots and lots of things going on that coalesce to create this monster <laughs> that we're seeing. Mm. So you mentioned an industry, absolutely. And I don't mean that, I mean, it's important to think, to understand that the sort of victim industry isn't this sort of cynical kind of quest to create victims to make money. Certainly that's part of it, but it's, it's, it's not just, you know, greedy drug companies, it's people like me who need to keep their job by getting a lot of research funding. And how do you get a lot of research funding? Well, you promise you're going to solve all kinds of social problems. Now, a lot of social problems can't be solved <laughs> or cannot be solved very easily anyway. But you can get a lot of funding by promising very simple solutions. And you can get the attention of policymakers because you need to demonstrate that your research has impact, right? You can get the attention of policymakers by promising that you uniquely have the solutions to all these problems. Now, if I say that the solutions to poverty or inequality within society, or that there aren't any solutions within capitalism and that we have to overcome this system. You know, no one's really going to listen to me. That's that's a huge, uh, you know, no, that, that's at, at least within this particular cultural context, no one's going to say, oh, really? Okay, well, I'm going to take my, my platform and it'll be overcoming capitalism. That's just not going to fly anymore. Um, so you draw on the sort of... Um, the frameworks that make sense, or you you try to speak to people on a at, at the lowest common denominator, and oftentimes that's the the body and the mind, right? I don't know what religion you are. I don't know uh, what you know ethnic background you might have or cultural whatever, but I do know that you have a body and I do know that you have a mind. So if I can speak to people at a sort of basic level of biology, um, then I can. Um, sell you my problem and my solution. So for instance, you know, um, 
poverty is caused by um, uh, poor parenting that damages children's brains. And if only we could give everybody parenting classes, then, you know, we wouldn't have this problem. And, and, And it's really parents that are damaging people and so on. So there's this sort of, there's this industry that, um, grows up around very simplistic solutions to a wide variety of problems. Creating a, a sort of victim industry isn't necessarily cynical. It's a necessary part of some people's everyday lives and their work. <laughs> it's important to understand that it's not just a sort of cynical money-making scheme. I gave you two kind of simplistic right-wing answers for why this is going on, actually. And you, mm-hmm. you added a third one, which is uh, what I hear from people on the right uh, when they're talking about this is that the problem is uh, affluence, uh, technology, and soft parenting, which is the opposite from you know what you what you just described. But we're too we coddle these kids, we try to raise their self esteem, we give awards for everything, and then they have these expectations that they're going to be uh, that their feelings are all that matter, and they enter into the world and. They make these ridiculous demands and, uh, you know, are wrecking our institutions and Western civilization is on the verge of collapse. I find that interesting that you said that that's kind of like a right wing thing. Um, I think a lot of people were really affected by that paper or not that paper, that article that went viral, the coddling of the American mind. Yes. And they also blamed parenting. And I found that rich because who was it that scared parents out of disciplining their children? It was partially uh, an industry of, of you know, self-styled experts. Uh, well, it's got a long, long history, obviously, going back to Freud and so on. Right. But there's, a, a you know, a whole class of, of experts who scared the crap out of parents that anything that you do, anything that you do is going to damage your kids. So you need to be very, very careful. And it's funny because, you know, even I, like, this is, it's my job to point out what nonsense a lot of this is. And I've just had a baby and I, I can't help but feel terrified that I'm not stimulating her enough and she's not going to be smart because I, I'm not talking. Do I, is she hearing the right amount of words every day? And is she going to be left behind? Because, you know, this, this amazing kind of paranoia that grows up around parenting and it's not caused by silly parents. It's, it's caused by sort of, um, a, a broader sort of cultural, framework of of parental determinism which says that whatever parents do to their children condemns them for life this it's a very sort of misanthropic and and degraded view of human beings right you're just a prison prisoner of your circumstances and you can never reflect on your experiences and overcome them um and interestingly this becomes sort of a self uh, self-fulfilling prophecy right if you have a culture in which you know we are the stories of sort of cliche we are the stories that we tell about ourselves right well we have a culture that encourages you to tell stories about yourself that connect the dots of causation from your bad parents <laughs> to all the problems that you have now right and so in that context, what's it like to be a parent? <laughs> so soft parenting, I found very interesting. I, I think that the, the authors of that coddling of the American mind should have looked to themselves. And interestingly, one of them was did some uh, work around happiness and has been this proponent of, oh, no, we shouldn't be protecting students from ideas that they don't like. What's going on? What's going on? Well, he should have looked at himself. He should have had a little bit of self-reflection that uh, when you run like yoga or, or yoga classes and meditation classes and you're, and, and what and have this idea that when students come, you need to build their resilience. Well, actually, you are 
perpetuating the same kind of idea that resilience isn't something inbuilt in people, that people without any kind of expert um, intervention lack the capacity to cope with the vicissitudes of life. Uh, and so everyday people need access to, you know, puppy rooms when they, hey, are, are you familiar with this? That yeah. <laughs> the university students need to have like a puppy to make them feel better around exams and that sort of thing. So it becomes like, again, a self-fulfilling prophecy that um, you create this situation or this environment where you expect people and you tell people constantly, you're vulnerable, you need to be propped up. And suddenly they, they are vulnerable. They do need to be propped up. They really, really, really do feel hurt by very simple slights and so on. But it's not parents. It's, a, it's an entire sort of industry, but also a culture um, that's lost the vocabulary to understand social problems in other ways um, besides very sort of individualistic kind of uh, explanations. And parenting is just one of them. Parent, parental determinism is just one of them. Another one is emotional determinism, that your inability to, that human beings' inability to make sense of their feelings and organize their feelings in the correct ways leads them to act in the incorrect ways and to do bad things and to be antisocial and so on. So there's sort of confluence of, of forces of like a sort of cultural context, claims makers, cultural entrepreneurs, a cult of victimhood and so on. I want to go through some of what you just said, but I want to go to the very beginning of what you just said when you were talking about your fears as a new parent and just offer you some mm. personal advice, which is just if you're worried about the kid not hearing enough language, just move the um, crib in front of the TV, turn it on, give them some Coca-Cola, <laughs> and try not to blow smoke in their face, and they'll be, they'll be fine. Yeah, I think that, that's what I keep trying to tell myself. Don't lock them in a closet, don't hit them with a frying pan, and probably they'll turn out fine. Okay, well, you gave me a lot to, to unpack there, and uh, so I, I, I want to say... Something more about this. I, I feel that I had this sort of instinctual stance towards all of this, which is to say that maybe we're looking in the wrong direction some of the time when it comes to figuring out why these attitudes exist. And, and perhaps I, uh, I'm, I'm wrong about this, but I feel that the real problem isn't with the students and isn't even with emphasis on uh, whether or not they're fragile or not, but with the philosophical concepts that they're taught as they enter the university, so that they're taught things like their experience is the foundation of their knowledge. The Enlightenment itself should be abandoned, and that science is, a, is a, just another discourse amongst others, and that it should be considered to be in some ways suspect maybe it's misogynist maybe it's racist science itself these ideas are what are most significant and that the therapeutic side of the university the fact that they're also given you know puppies and counseling and all of that maybe is like a symptom of these ideas certain ideas will become powerful in a certain context they will seem uniquely real they will sort of fit into a constellation of meaning that precedes them in a lot of ways. So a lot of the concepts, what's interesting is that a lot of the concepts that, that a lot of these sort of social justice warriors are, are using, they have a long history. They're very, quite old. And yet only now they're becoming really, really powerful. And I think that's important to understand. Like um, a concept like cultural appropriation. I remember learning about this long, you know, when, when I was an undergraduate. Uh, but only now am I seeing it all over the place. 
so I think that there's a context of a vulnerability of, of people in general, but young people in particular, uh, being brought on and up, brought up on a diet of like risk aversion an obsession with risk, uh, a sense that the world is uniquely dangerous there, uh, or more dangerous than it's ever been, that their psyche is very, very vulnerable and so on. And then these concepts, they learn these concepts and they become even more powerful because it's interesting because they, they, everybody exists in an active and selective engagement with their culture, right? With their sort of cultural milieu. Mm-hmm. And when you mention now science is a discourse, I think that's interesting because I remember um, learning about science as a discourse and it's no better than any other. And I remember that that had massive effects on me. And actually to this day, it still has a massive effect on me, even though I have tempered very, very much what I think about science. And, I've, and it's, I, I think, I hope I have a lot more robust understanding of where science is useful and where it isn't. But the idea of science as a discourse is in some ways embraced hugely. But in other ways, it's not, because actually a lot of identity politics is intensely biologically determinist. So they, there's this idea of like, um, you have a female brain or you have a male brain. Ideas about human nature um, still sort of abound. The, you know, even though some of these movements can be very profoundly anti-scientific, they use the language of science quite a lot. When, when we say science is a discourse, I think... Often enough, that translates to people, even if they don't know it, uh, to science is a narrative. It's a story. Mm. Rather than it's a set of practices and ways of approaching problems and, uh, you know, a system. Um, it's, it's a story. So science just presents one, kind, one story about the world and there are other stories about the world. This male-female brain story is one which is propped up by some scientific studies, but the scientific studies aren't the problem. It's the approach that people take to those studies. You know, like, like mm-hmm. from what I know about this male-female brain study is that there's some neurons in the brain which operate somewhat differently in men than women or in people who... Uh, yeah, that, that's that's. And, and I'll just say that, and that you can't determine what how they're operating, and to, and to accept an autopsy, <laughs> you know, you can only find these the the, mm. the the this information after, you know, the person's died. So there's no way to look at someone's brain while they're alive and determine whether it's male or female. It's just very it's very speculative. It's sort of the beginnings of uh, an idea about male-female brains or what it means um, if you actually look at the study. Well, well, the interesting thing is that there's this belief that the brain is somehow objective, that, that you know, people, people will lie, but let's look inside their brain and we'll get the truth, which is really weird because it's this idea comes from the death of the soul, but it actually reproduces an idea that's quite a lot like the soul, that it's the truth that lies behind the out, outer appearance. Um, but why on earth would uh, cultural ideas not be reflected in the brain? You know, you if you are socialized into a particular culture and so on, yeah. You know, for example, like if we define being a female intellectual as a disease, I'm sure that you could look inside my brain and find 10 years ago these emergent symptoms of a disease, <laughs> right? Right, right. 
through my engagement with the world, not this sort of passive thing that sort of, well, we found it in your brain and that's what happened and that's why you are this way. Uh, actually, brains exist in a cultural context and in fact can't, uh, you know, can't uh, not exist, you know, I'm sorry, we can't exist outside of that and, and, and still be human in a way that's recognizable in you and me talking to each other. I think that there are probably structures in the brain that are influenced by your experience and environment and some structures which don't change and aren't changed by those things. Or there's, And there may be a way to differentiate between those sorts of structures in the brain. I don't know if uh, the neurons that we're talking about, uh, they, it can be shown that they are – that their functioning changes – um, but I'm not. I'm not always sure that it adds a lot to the conversation. I mean, for like a really long time, people were like, "Oh, well, that the brain changes. The brain changes, and that's a big thing. You've actually changed the person's brain." And then they realized, well, actually, you can change it again. And there's neuroplasticity, right? right? And I remember listening to a, a podcast where they were talking about um, music and whether or not you know you can be tone deaf from from birth right and and they were talking to this neuroscientist like oh we thought for a long time that really is sort of inbuilt some people are like this but actually we're coming to realize this very exciting bit of research that you can actually train your brain to recognize different tones and i was like in other words learning (laughs) (laughs) right what did that really add to the conversation except uh, you know obviously you know it's a it's an it's a, a very exciting area and there's lots of different things but when neuroscience moves into the cultural sphere there's a lot of that stuff going on that it becomes another form of determinism the sort of like neural determinism you are your brain and uh, your brain is somehow outside of culture and determines who you are rather than you being some kind of self-determining agent it becomes a way of of denying agency which is really strange um well, yeah, I agree, and 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 you know, I'm not any kind of expert on any of this. So, what all, all I'll say is that this idea of a male and female brain is not is one that only really is important or exciting for people who are interested in transgender issues. I think I don't think that this is something mm-hmm. that people who are most interested in, say, feminism or gender equality, are excited by at all. And so there's some sort of cognitive dissonance over whether or not such brains exist. You know, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, depending on what kinds of groups you're trying to defend, I think. Um, Yeah, but I I brought this up. I brought the, the, I use the female brain just as an example of the active and selective engagement with the concepts that students are learning in the university. Science is a discourse, right? right? So in some cases, science is seen as a discourse, but uh, on the other hand, there's a lot of biological determinism. Um, and you can see this with sex and gender. So my understanding a long, you know, long time ago was that, you know, obviously gender is social and sex is biological, right? Right. Uh, and I teach this to my students. I, I teach about, you know, the emergence of this idea of gender as a social construct and so on. Mm-hmm. But before I do that, I, what's interesting is that in years past, students had no idea what I was on about. Right. As time has gone by, they all know this. Right. And I asked them, I said, well, OK, what is sex? I go, sex is biology. And what's changed in the last year or so is what is gender? And they say, well, sex is biology, but gender is more about how you feel, how, how you are inside. But, right. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's interesting, because actually it was it was meant to be very much an outside thing. It was something that was externally 
imposed on people right. um, and came to define their experiences. But my students had a very sort of inborn idea of what gender was. You're, you're born with your sex. You're born with your gender. The two things might not match up. Right. That's very interesting. That's, and that's, that's an example of, of, of another kind of biological determinism that, that they've embraced, even as they appear to be questioning the sort of sacred cows of our, of our culture. Actually, they aren't. They're demanding a radical conformity that your sex and your gender somehow match. Um, so that's just one example. But what I find very interesting is that when it comes to the science of the body, in terms of like medicalization, there is a, a trend in culture to sort of reject that, right? So science can't say much about my body as a woman. How dare you, male doctor, try to talk about my uterus or whatever. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the science of the mind, um, everyone's sort of like accepting it. You know, like, how dare you question postnatal depression as anything other than a real biological imbalance in the brain? And that you're somehow denying people's experiences and so on. So I think that's that's a really interesting sort of again active and selective engagement. All of a sudden, everybody's on about medicalization, and this isn't in the universities necessarily. This is sort of something that you come across when you become a mother as well. Is you're sort of meant to reject medicalization of your of your of, of childbirth. Right. Um, but then afterwards, you're invited immediately to medicalize your experience. So if you don't immediately bond with that child. You uh, people will immediately say, "Oh, well, you must have postnatal depression." But of course, if a if a man doesn't bond with the child, oh, well, that's a shame. You know, some men aren't like that, and but women, no, 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 you've got to be like that, right? So you're invited constantly to to diagnose yourself as having all these sorts of things. So I find that very interesting. I find that dichotomy runs through a lot of of contemporary culture that we're yes sorry we reject the, the medicalization of the body we love hearing stories about human evolution and that sort of thing when it comes to the mind and why we think the way we do and rejects human agency or minimizes human rationality we love it <laughs> yes give me more of that science uh, when it comes to the body and when it comes to people's sort of uh, autonomy over their own bodily experiences they don't want necessarily the authority of science. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's move on to the second thing about Trump, because you sent me this other article uh, about or blog post about Trump and emotionalism. This is where I start to feel like I'm trapped, because there is no reasoning, it seems like, with the Trump phenomena. There's no way mm -hmm. to... If you get someone who's a rabid Trump supporter, it's very difficult to make arguments that will convince them of anything and it's maybe that's also true uh, on you know in the on the left in fact i know it's true uh, to, to a large extent on the left but uh, what i find is that these people uh, who are trump supporters are very open about why they don't care about your reasons they'll say mm. Look, this is not about trump is not about reason or dialectics or figuring out what the truth is. Trump is about power. And we we will win. You know, that's that's what I encounter when I argue with someone who supports Trump is that you know, at base this is about tribal power and who's going to win. Mm -hmm. And we know that. And um the left doesn't say that but behaves that way quite a lot. Both sides 
of the political spectrum, if you can even call it that, because they, I mean, the, it's to, political spectrum going back to liberalism and so on. It, it, it bears very little resemblance to what we've got going on now. But yeah, it is at base. It's about tribal power. And I really like how you've said that because that's really it. Because if you really look at some of these things, groups have fragmented on the left, at least groups have fragmented into such tiny, tiny, silly little enclaves of, of, of identities that how on earth could you band together and get anything done? But that's not the point. No one wants to get anything done. They want their identity affirmed. You know, they want affirmation. They want confirmation that they're right. They want to feel good. And what hit home to me, what sort of like really brought this home for me was um, watching a a debate with Brendan O'Neill Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, and I can't remember who he was debating, uh, the, the a student leader or something like that. And she was like, you know, in our safe spaces, in our uh, we 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 talk about some really heavy stuff, and and we talk about basically they talked about themselves. That's what she, she, she's saying that they they talked about their experiences and all the bad stuff that happened to them. Right. That was what their political movement was about: themselves talking about themselves, wanting people to affirm their suffering. It's not that they don't want to get anything done. People do want to get things done. They just don't want to do it based on any kind of democratic reasons of process. They want to get things done in the manner of authoritarians. Yeah, you're right. And actually, that was something that I wrote down was that on the one hand, it's not about getting anything done. But on the other hand, it's about getting what you can done in a way that reduces any any hope of opposition, you know, that, you know, for example, if you try to oppose, you know, cultural appropriation people, they'll call you a racist. (laughs) And and nobody wants to be branded a racist. So everybody just shuts up and capitulates and says, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I don't run a yoga class. I run mindful stretching. They want to get things done. But the the things that they want to get done are low hanging fruit, for one thing, because nobody feels that they actually can get anything done that's meaningful or worthwhile anymore. I hate how every time that we talk, we I wind up bitching and whining about the left because the right <laughs> well, at the right. moment. Yeah, go ahead. It's the exact same thing going on. It's worse. You know, it's, it's, it's worse. They don't want to just stop yoga classes. They would like to deport millions of people, build a wall, um, shut down. Just Trump talks sometimes about uh, you know jailing newspaper reporters or suing them anyway if they if they are negative, not if they lie, but if they're negative. Um, you know, these people are authoritarians and they're not hiding it. The difference between the left and the right is the right doesn't hide it, which makes them to me even scarier. You hit the nail on the head that the difference is they, they're just not hiding it. You know, they, they want emotional solutions to problems. They don't have any concrete ideas. They don't know what the hell is going on, but, uh, they're not hiding it. Which is why... I'm so frustrated with the left because the refutations that are offered often are emotional appeals. Like, Trump is a racist. You know, first of all, you've defanged that for 15, 15, 20 years. You've taken all the venom out of that accusation. It has no weight anymore. Trump is a racist, and so is Noam Chomsky sometimes, right? We can't, exactly. So yeah. we can't differentiate now what you mean. It doesn't. It's meaningless. 
Um, so there's that problem, but also it just it it's saying don't be in the wrong club. Basically, <clears throat> the good people are over here. That's the that's the appeal. Rather than let's look at what your actual problems are and what we can do to solve them and what we want to have happen. It's just don't be in the wrong. Lately, I've been talking to a guy who's got a history of being on the right, uh, Glenn Lowry. I don't know if you've heard the podcasts I've had with him. He's now he he in the '90s he became a liberal a Democrat, uh, and um, he considers himself to be a man of the left of some kind or another now. But what he talks what what frustrates him the most when it comes to talking about racial issues is how certain topics are simply off limits, like black crime or, or the amount of crime in, in black neighborhoods and how that influences or, or contributes to um, the disproportionate amount of, of police violence against black people. And you can't even raise that issue. It doesn't matter what your solution is going to be to that problem or what, what, what position you're taking on that problem. For instance, if you say the problem is that uh, wealth uh, inequality and you know long-term historical trends have created these uh, enclaves of poverty and crime, and we have to do something about that. That doesn't matter because you can't even start the, the conversation about that issue, that problem. Mm. It's off the table. Even if you have a very left-wing solution, the question itself is associated with the right, so now it's out. And uh, that's the approach that's being taken o- overall, I think. Now, mm-hmm. I'll let you respond. I kind of look. No, I, I mean, yeah, I think that that's that's happening. You can't even start a conversation about a lot of things. Um, you know, on the left, everyone just argues about whether or not it's okay to raise the question. Right. <laughs> Who are you? Is this is male or whatever? Um, but also, some things are off are off the table. Yeah. On the right, the right is also interestingly being late to the game and giving up on ideology entirely. At least for the last maybe 10 years, you had some semblance of outsider candidates that had a kind of claim to consistent ideology. Um, and I think it's interesting that they, that the, the new right has gone this sort of the way of the new left of, okay, whatever works kind of thing. But I wonder if this is partially an expression of powerlessness when it comes to the sort of wicked issues that at its base, everyone is kind of sort of acquiescing to the fact that we, or, 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 or there's a strong feeling that we can't do anything about big, big problems. Why bother even talking about the solutions, right? I mean, Trump, it's amazing to me when you listen to these speeches that he doesn't actually put forward anything concrete. And everybody keeps saying that, but it not that scary? Like, <laughs> right. he, he has no idea. He has absolutely no idea how to solve issues. But everyone's like, yeah, neither do I. We, we really don't know. We can't. We can't solve any problems. So let's all just digress and enjoy the show. I think my mistake here is that I'm, I'm counterpoising Trump to, like, what is actually a very small corner of what used to be the left today. And I, I'm not even thinking about Clinton. <laughs> because... You don't really have like a left wing party in the United States. You've got like a center party, and what was that that line? You haven't got a you've got a center party and a crazy party. <laughs> right, right. Well, you have two different. I mean, I think there's a difference between 
there's a political difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. The Democrats do support redistributionist policies much more often than Republicans do. Or they, you know, and certainly on the fringes of the Democratic Party and the fringes of the Republican Party, there's clear ideological differences. Like Bernie Sanders was a redistributionist liberal Democrat, you know, in the style of FDR. And that was a kind of left politics. Not radical, but it's there, it's left. It's not really connected to working class movements or unions so much, although there's some rhetoric around that, but it was a redistributionist policy approach. Mm -hmm. And the right tends to be, you know, uh, more classically liberal. Free markets will solve everything. Get the governments off our backs, that kind of approach. Let's try to encourage investment, that kind of thing. And those are neither one of those positions are radical. Those are just two different kind of spheres of the same bourgeois politics, right? Yeah, of course. But, but Trump is not uh, you know, that. Trump is not someone says, oh, let's get government off our backs, let the markets decide. He's not that. Um, he's not, uh, you know, let's redistribute uh, uh, either. He's just kind of, I don't know, he's just sort of a, a smorgasbord of whatever pops into his head. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and which I think leads me to, would lead you to think he's sort of a fascist because fascists are both, you know, they, they'll, they're for redistribution and, mm. and they're, they're uh, for intervening in the markets, um, but they're profoundly authoritarian and um, profoundly for the wealthy as well in services, you know, so, I mean, so the fascists are not, they don't cleave along the, the lines that American politics generally cleave. You know? It's a tired, tired, tired comparison. But I mean, it's a, it's a real, it's a real comparison. It, it's, it is scary. You know the, I, I hate to do this, but you know the Nazi Party. You know they called themselves, you know, socialist, right? As as a way of of getting. And oh gosh, boy, how how many internet debates has that spawned about having to explain that, my God, they're not socialists, they're the complete opposite. But anyways, yeah. um, um, you know, as a way of, of talking to a working class that was, uh, you know, partial to socialist ideas at the time, it's whatever works. Uh, and, and, you know, Trump uses the language of we. Um, we, you know, it's not this individualist, traditional sort of right wing kind of thing. No, it's it's we. Whatever it works, it's us. So it's this attempt to also speak to, um, you know, uh, a kind of community uh, in a way that is traditionally associated with left wing rhetoric, at least in the United States. So there's a, there's a strong comparison to be made there. Um, that's very very scary, even though it's cliche. I I kind of think of Trump as a sort of an organic politician. In other words, he doesn't have strong commitments institutionally to anybody, and he sort of just absorbed a, a, an American politics which is eclectic and comes from his gut, basically, and that's <laughs> what you end up with. You know, mm-hmm. it's this incoherent, quasi-fascist, uh, sometimes racist um, politics. Uh, and he scares me, but I don't feel like I'm helping anything now, you know, (laughs) 
this is all stuff yeah. everybody knows. Um, exactly. So, the, and I feel like if we can critique the left successfully, that we might have that that might be better than going after Trump somehow. But on the other hand, I don't know. It seems like the moment is past for that kind of criticism. Well, yeah, I don't know. What I think is that for a long, long time, people have been hungry for uh, a rhetoric that isn't so much about fear and um, that gives some kind of positive, you know, goal that society should be striving toward. Right. And I think anybody who comes forward and is ostensibly able to provide that, even if it's just a pile of rhetoric, it becomes quite exciting, even though he does obviously use the language of fear and that sort of thing. But the left has become a bunch of miserablists, right? Uh, you know, of course, you know, you're just you're hounding people constantly, you know, about what they eat and about the cars that they drive and and uh, your children are at risk and, and you know, constantly... Uh, sort of using this sort of doomsday thinking, uh, people are just sort of, yeah, okay, world's coming to an end, leave me alone. You know, they, it's just, the answer is just to write people off. Um, and so the left is, has failed there. And, and so in one sense, a self-critique on the left is really important. But at the same time, you need to articulate a vision of something positive. And I think that's what's missing as well. Uh, but also, you need to, you do need to be able to critique the right, and I think this is a a problem that everyone was thought that Trump was a joke, right? Everyone was making these jokes, and a lot of people were saying, "Oh, how do we defeat Trump? Well, let's use humor." No, actually, it's very serious. Um, and if you treat people as a as a joke, if you just laugh at things, you sort of encourage a smug sense of self assurance that doesn't really do anything to win you over to win other people over to your side to win those people who are alienated from the left, who don't see the left as having anything to do with their desires or their aspirations or their families or whatever. You just make these people into a laughing stock. Well, great, you've, you've just alienated people. You've, you've not really done anything. You've just sort of um, engaged in a kind of like, oh, <laughs> what is a better way of saying this than circle jerk? <laughs> we didn't really talk about the... Uh peace uh, between rage and terror too much and there was a or the growing disaffection with anything mainstream i pulled that quote out where he said there's a growing disaffection with anything mainstream and a perception of the world is out of control and driven driven by malign forces and i think that has very much the abandonment of the mainstream has come from an abandonment of politics in other words it's not that we um because if you're trying to change society, you're going to be critical of what is mainstream, right? Mm -hmm. But what's happening now is we're abandoning the notion that there should be a mainstream or anything that gets mm -hmm. to be a normative, any normative function, any normative set of principles is automatically suspect now. So, mm. so we're, we're abandoning this idea that we want to change what's mainstream. But how do you think we can critique and even aimed to transcend society without undoing the very notion of societal as opposed to tribal bonds or without abandoning the notion of, that there should be a mainstream. This is, yeah, this is the question of our times, really. What I want to say, living in a dream world, is that I wish that we could reinvigorate humanism. I wish that we could win that argument against 
identity because this, uh, you know, what, what uh, Malik's point about this growing disaffection with anything mainstream is so powerful. It, it, it's so spot on, you know, all across the political spectrum, people want to define themselves as not mainstream. You don't want to, you don't want to change things. You want to define yourself as outside it. I'm a maverick. I'm different. And it's about your identity and your yourself. Mm. Right. Um, and I feel like there isn't anybody sticking up for humanist principles uh, against that, you know, to articulate why it is better and more powerful to have a stronger idea or a more open idea, not a stronger idea, more, a more open idea of what humans can become um, rather than all of these sorts of determinisms that everybody sort of revels in. I'm you know, cisgender, I'm uh, an American, I'm this, I'm that. Uh, we need to sort of reinvigorate this kind of sense of common humanity, you know, which it sounds so cliche. Sounds really old fashioned, right? Yeah. And, and Malik says in that in that paper, he says that um, anti contemporary anti-racism isn't anti-racism, but it's, um, it's actually systematic of the decline of anti-racism of its of its decline, of its disintegration, that is. Right. Um, and I think that's absolutely right, because a lot of what comes out of so-called anti-racist people's mouths are very, very old racist ideas. Right. Um, to the point where if you, you know, I had I took an anthropology degree 10 years ago, and if I'd have heard some of these arguments, I would have been shocked. I would have said, that's what colonialists used to say. <laughs> right. And it's supposed to be anti-colonialist. At least if you had this idea, you know, that old idea of like, well, our people will intermarry and in three generations, our differences will be forgotten. Right. Well, that's based on this norm of like white European culture as like the norm and our differences will be forgotten because we'll all become white European culture. OK, that's a problem. However, the rational kernel in that was a belief that there was something that's actually a little bit progressive, this belief that there's something fundamentally human in common to all people in the world that is now systematically denied and seen as problematic. Humanist ideas were used to, to terrible ends, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're spoiled to the core. I mean, even Franz Fanon acknowledged uh, a debt or a debt acknowledged that Western philosophy had all of, at some point, had articulated a lot of the answers to the world's problems. It just never made good on its promises. And indeed, I would argue, and I think Malik argues, indeed, not I, Malik argues that um, that it, it didn't make good on its promises because it couldn't make good on its promises. The economic basis of a real human humanist society did not exist yet. So the Enlightenment articulated a lot of principles that it, it could never make good on so long as we had capitalism, which is based on a fundamentally a fundamental divisions between people um, and in which you have to have hierarchies and so on. You couldn't have a real universal human ideal. But that doesn't mean that we reject it and we say, oh, well, it's a myth, so let's just default to the present. No, you, you, you these ideals, the... They work only by transcending the present. So you have to fight to transcend the present to make them come to fruition. Just because they can't, don't exist now doesn't mean that 
they never can or they ought never to that we should right. oh well we can't have a universal human so let's all just fragment into our little identities well no we can't have a universal human because we have a, don't live in that particular context we don't have that economic basis in which that becomes real so let's fight for that 